For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. When I asked Rachel Bade to describe what today's going to look like on Capitol Hill, she was blunt. It's going to be chaos. Rachel is a reporter over at Politico. She says this chaos is going to kick off right away as representatives meet up to elect a speaker to lead the lower chamber. And as that happens, Rachel, she'll have her eyes on one person, the outgoing speaker, Nancy Pelosi. Well, she's going to be sitting in the chamber, my guess, with her legs crossed and her arms crossed uh, smugly and really probably enjoying this moment when Kevin McCarthy is going to be squirming. Republican leader Kevin McCarthy is going to be squirming because of how hard he's been working to scare up enough votes to replace Pelosi. I wouldn't be surprised if we see a meme of her reaction to McCarthy trying to get the gavel on January 3rd because it's going to be quite something. Rachel is not sentimental about this changing of the guard. But as a reporter, she is already getting slightly nostalgic. You know, you could always just go up to, to Pelosi and walk and talk with her in the hall, uh, ask her questions at her weekly press conference, and, you know, she might often be on talking point, but she answers them. That's going to change, I think, next year. Kevin McCarthy is going to have such a slim majority in Congress. He's going to be, you know, in many ways trying to avoid questions that put him in a, in a bind with his own members. Do you think Washington is going to miss Nancy Pelosi when she's out of leadership? I'm certain Democrats will. The new crop of members, they're untested at this point. So, I mean, this is a party that, you know, has a big tent. There's uh, progressives and liberals on the left. There is blue dogs uh, in the center, moderate Democrats who are afraid to take votes that perhaps the party really wants them to take. And Pelosi has been able to to sort of bridge that divide and, and find a way to bring Democrats together to get things done. Today on the show, what is the legacy of a political legend? What Nancy Pelosi got right and what she got wrong? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI will not help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, or automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, 
You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What happens in Ukraine has consequences for what's happening. AI. Hello, listeners. I'm Gabrielle Sierra, host of the Why It Matters podcast from the Council on Foreign Relations. Look, the world of international affairs can feel overwhelming and complex, but it also shapes our lives every single day. So it pays to know what's going on out there. Why It Matters is a foreign policy podcast for the rest of us. And with a little bit of humor and a lot of questions, we're here to break down global topics and bring the world home to you. So join us every two weeks on Why It Matters wherever you listen. Nancy Pelosi grew up invested in politics, right? She absolutely did. I mean, she was born, uh, when she was born, her father was a member of Congress. And then as she grew up, you know, her dad became this really powerful mayor in Baltimore. And Pelosi saw firsthand, you know, how politics worked. She watched her dad. I mean, I remember hearing these stories about how when she was little, all these people would come into their family home and ask her dad for favors of some sort, you know, whether it's for something in a housing project or something with their local business or getting something, you know, through uh, the local government that would help them. And he would help them, but he would keep these favor files where he would write down everyone who he he had given some sort of favor to. And Later on, when he would need their votes for something or their support on some sort of initiative he was backing, both him and his wife, Pelosi's mom, would get out that favor file and sort of see, okay, who owes us? (laughs) And who can we call on to do a favor for us in a moment that we need that? And I think Pelosi very much learned from that sort of horse trading, right? She would end up doing that a lot as speaker. Uh, But she was very much saturated in politics from a very young age. Every day was a campaign. There was never an election that we weren't involved in. I learned from my father that it was important to know how to count. You You know, it's been said, and, and she's talked about this, her mom thought of her as a future nun. She wanted her to be a huh. nun. And she had a bunch of siblings, right? She was the only girl, right? Right. And and all the boys were sort of seen as, okay, th- maybe they'll be politicians growing up. But no one really in the family at that point sort of thought of, of Pelosi becoming the most powerful Democrat in the land. And yet, you know, that's exactly what she would grow up to be. It's now my privilege to present the gavel to the first woman speaker in our history, the gentle lady from California, Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi will be the highest ranking woman to ever hold political office two heartbeats away from the president. She would end up getting married in college, so much for being a nun, have five kids in six years. Hmm. And people who talk about, you know, just being effective, you know, as a mother, she would, you know, have sort of assembly lines where she would have her kids, you know, folding laundry and and passing it down the assembly line or, you know, doing the dishes. Very efficient. And, And that also clearly shaped her because she would be a very effective and efficient leader, too. She got involved in politics herself when she was in California with her husband. She was a fundraiser. How did she decide to run, though, for office? It was after her kids were pretty grown, right? That's right. 
again, going back to sort of being efficient, she was a great organizer. She was at a picket line and, and held, you know, protest uh, signs herself. She very seeped in um, the causes that, you know, Democrats were talking at that at that point. What was she like on the picket line about? Well, you know, at the time, um, there was a lot of concern about, you know, this new uh, virus that was coursing through the nation we know now know as AIDS and a lot of people dying very suddenly and not knowing what was going on. That was one of her top sort of priorities and things she talked about as an activist and would become one of her top issues in the Congress when she would eventually get here. But the AIDS epidemic at that time was raging in our district and people thought, and I was confident that I could be a person who could make a difference on it, you know, mother of five. But, you know, she started um, organizing for Democratic causes, would eventually lead the California Democratic Party and oversee the Democratic National Convention uh, in 1984. And from there, you know, a lot of Democrats saw how she was very good at doing this and very good at raising money. She became uh, very good friends with a congressman, Phil Burton, who was very powerful in Congress at that point, befriended him and his wife, Sally Burton, who would later take over for Phil Burton when he died. And, you know, on her deathbed, uh, there's a story out there about how Sally Burton actually asked Pelosi to run for her seat and thought that she would be the best person to lead their area of California. And so, you know, after that, Pelosi sort of threw her hat into the ring, uh, ran against a whole bunch of Democrats for that primary, won, won the primary, and found herself in Washington, you know, just a few months later. And that was the beginning of the Pelosi we know here in Washington. According to the official returns of the special election, the Honorable Nancy Pelosi was elected to the Office of United States Representative in Congress from the 5th District of California. How quickly did she rise through the ranks? She was elected in the 80s, right? 1987? That's right. And by 2001, she was House Minority Whip. So that, you know, that's pretty quick. She sort of took a page out of her mentor's book, Phil Burton, and made a lot of friends in Congress, got to know members very well, their districts, projects they were working on, sought to help lawmakers where she could. Um, she has a very personal touch when it comes to sort of dealing with other members. Like she will send flowers when somebody loses a loved one or, you know, a quick congratulation note when somebody has, you know, a new grandchild. And so she became well known in the caucus as, you know, someone to be reckoned with and, and somebody who, you know, is there to help support and help members get things done. And so when that position opened up for Minority Whip, she ran for it. She won a very narrow victory. And a few years later, when Democrats flipped the House, she became the first female Speaker of the House. And I remember, I mean, this has been one of the, the most sort of remembered moments of her history uh, when George W. Bush came to Congress for his State of the Union after Democrats had flipped the, the House, privilege. you know, one of the first things he said was, own. I'm going to be... As the first president to begin the State of the Union message with these words, Madam Speaker. And the whole, you know, all the congregation, the all the lawmakers stood up and applauded. Hmm. And it was just like a big moment for her in taking the reins of the Democratic Party. But she'd also mixed it up with Bush too, right? Like, wasn't she initially one of the people opposed to the Iraq war? She was. She was. And in fact, she actually found herself in a little bit of hot water with her own party on that issue. She obviously opposed the Iraq war. 
at a time when a lot of Democrats were supporting that. But there were Democrats back in San Francisco in her district who wanted her to go a step further. They were pushing her to start impeachment proceedings uh, in the House. They wanted her to impeach Bush for the Iraq war. And she said no. Why? She said, that's not what our party is about. She didn't see it as impeachable at the time. And you also have to remember that Pelosi came of age at a time when Bill Clinton was being impeached. She saw how impeachment could be a political boomerang that goes back and hurts the party that is actually wielding that knife, right? Republicans impeached Bill Clinton but then had a terrible performance when they were going through that process. They had a terrible performance in the elections that year. And Bill Clinton experienced a political lift. And so Pelosi had sort of been a congresswoman, rank and file member, sort of living through that and seeing that. And so when it came to George W. Bush, she was afraid of what, you know, that might do for his own poll numbers. There was a fear that, you know, if you impeach him, that could actually strengthen him. And because of that, she faced, you know, picketers who would show up at her home in San Francisco who would sleep in her driveway and chant that she needed to do more. And so this is, you know, an early phase of Pelosi's leadership career where we're seeing that she was willing to hold the line on the far left from what they want, something they wanted her to do. And at the same time, she was getting this record for being incredibly effective at delivering legislation. If you had to pick one legislative victory that you think embodies what Nancy Pelosi was able to do, and her success, what would you pick? Easily the Affordable Care Act. I mean, I know right now it's called uh, Obamacare, nicknamed. Uh, It could easily be called Pelosi Care because without her, that never would have passed. You know, there is amazing footage in a new documentary that just came out called Pelosi by her daughter. It's airing on HBO actually right now of her trying to whip the votes to pass the Affordable Care Act. And, you know, at one point, Her aides had given her a list of all the members who were refusing to, Democratic members who were refusing to back the Affordable Care Act and saying, you know, we're really far off from getting the 218 votes to actually pass this thing. And Pelosi said, you know, give me that list and I will make these calls. I had a little disturbing report that he said we expect to get us pass on this. There are no passes, especially on something as central to who we are as Democrats. No, but I mean, this is, this is, it's, this is the defining moment for the Democrats. This is why we elect Democrats. This is why we are here. And we can't just be on the taking end of it. But it's just the definition of saying, I'm not on this team. It has to be some of a giving, especially on a vote like this. I'm going to take a bit more from Johnson. Okay? Thank you. Bye-bye. You have to remember back at the time, you know, whereas Obamacare is very popular right now, It was very unpopular, and Republicans were using that to sort of say, look, we've got to flip the House. Uh, Democrats are going to take away your health care, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of these moderate Democrats, these blue dogs in these sort of centrist districts, swing districts, they were afraid of losing their seats. And so they were asking Pelosi for a pass. Uh, And a pass in Congress just means, you know, okay, I have the green light to vote no, even though the rest of the party is going to be voting yes. And Pelosi told them, no, forget it. I need you. I need your votes. We have to get this done. And when people said, look, we're going to lose the House, her response was, we're here to do a job, not keep a job. So she very much went into this knowing that the political blowback 
was such that, you know, Democrats were going to probably lose power in the midterms of that year. But it was something she really cared about and something she thought the party owed to its constituents. It was one one of the reasons why they had sent them, put them in power in Congress. And so um, she was not going to let the, the fear of the political blowback stop her on that. And that is easily one of the things she is most proud of when you talk to her. It's interesting to think about what Nancy Pelosi saw as worth political blowback. Because you're saying that with Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, she was so strong about like, this is worth it. This is worth it. But in other circumstances, she's been quite cautious because she's been worried about political blowback. That's right. I think the best example of that is on Medicare for All. You know, it's interesting because in in the 2020 election, a lot of the Democratic uh, contenders for the White House, um, not Joe Biden specifically, but others, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, a whole bunch of Democrats running, were backing the idea of Medicare for all. And Pelosi saw that as something that would alienate a lot of swing district voters and would actually blow back on Democrats. And she actually advised Joe Biden at the time don't get sucked into this. Uh, you know, stay in the sort of centrist lane and don't go that far because she was afraid that if he did, Trump would get reelected. And so this is sort of an interesting dynamic about Pelosi in that she herself is, you know, a liberal from San Francisco. She she clearly, you know, talks about that all the time, but she will tell you, you know, even though I'm representing my district, I know that other district in other districts, certain things do not play well. And so as a leader, she actually governed from the center, even though she herself was a progressive. She, the, the top voices in her head when she was making big decisions about legislation, they were the members from, you know, uh, Iowa who were, had just flipped a Republican district, uh, members who were facing a, a major challenge in the upcoming elections and who could lose their seat if they moved too far left. And so it's sort of an interesting dynamic uh, to sort of look at those two different things, her being a progressive, but then governing from the middle. When we come back, the Trump years burnished Pelosi's image, but also could have revealed her Achilles heel. In the latest season of Blind Spot from WNYC Studios and the History Channel, join host Kai Wright as he travels back to a pivotal moment in the history of this country. Decades before COVID-19, a virus tore through some of our most vulnerable communities while the wider world looked away. Throughout the season, you'll meet people who demanded that they and their illness be seen. Mothers, children, doctors, nurses, nuns, and sex workers – all leading to a woman who literally helped change the definition of AIDS. Blind Spot, the plague in the shadows. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. To me, Nancy Pelosi's time as speaker during the Trump years is maybe the most interesting period of her career because it's this era of resurgence where she becomes a real central character in American politics, but also especially in your view, it's a time where she makes some tactical errors. So I wonder if we can start with the resurgence. Do you have a story in your head about how during the Trump presidency, Nancy Pelosi burnished her image, used Trump almost as a foil? 
Yeah, I think the best example of that is how she stood up to him when he was uh, trying to build his border wall with Mexico. Donald Trump, right before she became speaker for the second time, he had shut the government down to try to force Democrats to give him money for the wall. And Pelosi famously said, you're not going to get a penny. And she she stood her ground on that and ended up winning because after the government shutdown happened, voters saw you know what was happening in government workers not getting paid, government services not being fulfilled, and they blamed Republicans. They blamed Trump. And so eventually Trump had to cave on that. But this really solidified Pelosi as his number one foil. And it also helped her sort of reestablish herself as the person who is going to be in charge of the Democratic Party. If you go back to right when Democrats flipped the House in the Trump years, Pelosi actually faced a mutiny in Congress where there were a bunch of members who said her time has come and gone. It's time for new leadership. And there was a question at one point at the end of 2018 about whether she would even get the votes to be speaker. And so Pelosi, you know, being as effective as as she is, met with her detractors one at a time, brought them in, found out what legislative priorities they needed passed, made promises uh, about committee assignments, et cetera, and sort of picked them off one at a time and was able to get the gavel. I'm imagining her with like a file cabinet like her dad. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if she had one of those. So, and going back to the wall fight, that sort of made liberals who were sort of concerned about Pelosi, weren't sure if she should come back, really rally behind her as sort of the anti-Trump figure. You've written this whole book, though, about how impeachment revealed some, I don't know if you'd put it this way, as weaknesses in Nancy Pelosi's leadership, but definitely a place where she chafed with her own party. I'm wondering if you can just explain how that worked because i was i was looking back at the last times we had you on the show and i'm realizing when we had you on the first time it was because no one knew what was happening with impeachment like nancy pelosi was saying never going to happen you were saying nancy pelosi is never going to let this happen and then there were members of the party who were like it's going to happen it's going to happen it's going to happen and i'd kind of forgotten that moment but when you retell it it becomes clear that this is a really pivotal point to understanding nancy pelosi's leadership It really is. Um, Pelosi feared impeachment, that it would blow back on Democrats. And so from the first day of the new Congress, and you'll remember Rashida Tlaib, who was caught on video saying we're going to impeach the MF, I won't use the word, family show. Um, Pelosi actually worked behind the scenes to send a message to Rashida and tell her that is not going to happen and that is not what Democrats stand for. And she did this for the entire first nine months of 2019. You know, Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler was privately telling her, look, the evidence in the Mueller report would lead any other American to be put in jail. We have to impeach Trump for this. She was ignoring him. She kept saying, no, we're not going to do it. And eventually, liberal Democrats on the Judiciary Committee were so frustrated by this that they started organizing this mutiny against Pelosi, this very private mutiny, where they were going to try to put both public pressure on her from the outside, but also whip enough House Democrats to support impeachment so that she couldn't 
she couldn't hold the line anymore. And that's effectively what they did. They forced her hand. They forced her hand, exactly. When the Ukraine allegations came out, uh, news that President Donald Trump had tried to use taxpayer dollars to force Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden, who at the time, you'll remember, was the Democrat that most polling showed would be most likely to beat Trump in a matchup uh, in the 2020 election. Pelosi actually knew about that allegation, but even then she was pushing back against impeachment. She still didn't want to do it. Only when those allegations came became public, there was this sort of rising tide that she could not stop anymore. And so she was pushed into this. And then after she sort of did this about face and embraced impeachment, we report in the book that she wanted everything to be over with very quickly because of the concern about political blowback. She wanted her frontliners to pivot back to talking about legislative issues, pocketbook issues that resonated with voters. The frontliners are the people who are facing stiff Republican opposition. Yes, there's members from Trump districts who, frankly, didn't want to do an impeachment either. And so she was thinking about that, and she put everything on a very quick timeline. And that, you know, unfortunately meant not going after firsthand witnesses, people who had heard Trump say point blank that he was trying to engage in this quid pro quo. And that refusal to go after witnesses like that came even as we report in the book at least one conservative Republican, Francis Rooney of Florida, had approached her on the House floor and said, look, I'm willing to impeach Trump, and I think other Republicans would be willing to do it too, but only if we hear from a firsthand witness about what happened. Somebody like John Dean, who did the same thing with Richard Nixon and helped change public sentiment against the president at that time. And Pelosi said no. She said, that takes too long. We'd have to go to the courts to try to run down these subpoenas. We don't have time to do that. And so sort of the argument we make in this book and what we heard from Democrats privately was that because she wanted impeachment to be over with so quickly, Democrats were never able to make a full case of what Donald Trump was like to the public and a full sort of deep dive into all the crimes, you know, he was potentially committing from the White House. Speaker Pelosi ended up confining the House's first impeachment inquiry to a very narrow focus on whether the president had exerted inappropriate political pressure on Ukraine. That meant the proceedings ignored other allegations, like whether Trump was using his position in the Oval Office to make money, or whether he'd used campaign funds to silence women alleging that had affairs with him. Rachel's reporting suggests that the narrow focus here might have hurt the Democrats' case. And we all know what happens next. Trump gets acquitted by the Senate on all counts. And so now it is official. The president has been acquitted on both charges, on both articles of impeachment. Surely President Trump will declare this a vindication. Democrats. And then came January 6th. Even after the riot at the Capitol, Pelosi hesitated. She worried another impeachment could upend Joe Biden's agenda. And she ended up quelling an effort to impeach Trump that very same night. Within a week, she changed her mind, but Rachel still wonders if Nancy Pelosi's hesitation cost the Democrats some momentum. The January 6th committee is a perfect example uh, of why our thesis of the first two impeachments is is correct. They didn't do their homework uh, even on the second impeachment. And because of that, they felt they had to go back and do a fuller investigation, which they should, about what happened on January 6th and how um, 
what what led up to it, what Trump was doing in the White House, and the aftermath to sort of tell the public what happened. My argument on the January 6th committee issue is that, you know, the moment sort of passed, right? I mean, obviously, all this stuff came out at a later point about Trump trying to go to the White House and uh, trying to get Secret Service to drive to the Capitol. We didn't know that at the time of the second impeachment inquiry. Would that have changed people's minds? I guess we'll never know, right? But what we do know is that the second impeachment came and went without Trump being barred from office. Uh, and so in that respect, you know, even the January 6th committee's work, as amazing as it has been, uh, will not change that. Rachel says there's a certain irony in the fact that Nancy Pelosi's biggest fear in investigating Donald Trump was Democrats losing political clout. Over the last year, as the January 6th committee dug deeper into the days leading up to the Capitol riot, their work only seems to have underlined the importance of preserving small-D Democratic norms. And after months of anticipating a red wave in the 2022 midterms, Nancy Pelosi oversaw the exact opposite an anticlimactic performance where Dems held on to most of their seats. Though Republicans are now in the majority, their margin is slim enough to count as a modest win. With that final victory under her belt, Pelosi was ready to step down. She really picked the perfect moment to lead. I mean, the performance of Democrats on Election Day surprised you know, not only Republicans and a lot of voters, but it surprised Democrats. But it was specifically because of the hard work, you know, Nancy Pelosi did to try to defend her majority, right? They ended up losing the House, but they only barely lost the House by just a couple of seats. And so, you know, it's a perfect sort of note for her to strike right before she leaves to show that strength and leave McCarthy in this position where he's not uh, potentially going to be speaker, or maybe he will, but he's going to have, you know, a hell of a time trying to corral his own conference. So, even though the headlines were about Republicans flipping the House, you know, in the days and weeks after the midterms, I would say Pelosi had her sort of final troll moment, you know, with this <laughs> exit. <laughs> and going out on such a high note, once again, it just really solidifies her legacy as like the strongest speaker we've seen in modern history and really went out uh, on a high note. Rachel Bade, I'm super grateful for your time and all of your reporting. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to do it. Rachel Bade is a political analyst for CNN and the co-author of Politico's Playbook newsletter. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Carmel Delshad, and Madeline Ducharme. We are getting a ton of support right now from Anna Phillips, Jared Downing, and Victoria Dominguez. We're led by Alicia Montgomery, and I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's Desk. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you tomorrow. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.